Uh, good morning. I'm going to miss that music when it's gone, man. That's just so plucky. All right. Hey, quick question for you this morning. How many of you have ever been in a circumstance, a situation, a time in your life where you felt the odds were just so stacked against you, it was never going to come about? How many people have been in that place? How many enjoyed it? Yeah, me neither. All right. So totally get that. Like, I prefer safety, security, the, the sense of absolute certainty. I want everything to be right in place exactly as I would want to predict it. I don't want any new surprises to catch me. And, and so sometimes in life, though, you get these circumstances that just really feel like the odds are just way out of balance with uh, what you're hoping to see be reality. And, and just as a moment of openness and transparency see, to set the stage this morning, uh, you know that in the last couple of weeks we've announced we're doing this new giving campaign, and it is to raise $850,000 in eight weeks. Those feel like heavy odds, right? Like, I, there was never a time when I was a little boy growing up in Sedona, Arizona, where I said to myself, one day I want to grow up, and I want to ask people for money at church. Like, that was never like this drive in me, you know what I mean? And so even this feels a little daunting, and, and I admit, I don't love like dwelling in the numbers right now. I don't love trying to even like, like calculate out like, hey, do I need to look at full-time work and I just do part-time in the church and all that? I don't love those odds at all. But I thought about it more, right? And, and then I realized that, you know what, that what God loves to do is to take us out of comfort zones. God loves to put us in spaces where we are outside of our ability, outside of our capacity. We can't, like, manhandle it. We can't engineer it in such a way to make it go exactly the way we want it. And so he, he kind of does that. So he's like, when you're at the end of yourself, then that is space where I can work and operate. And in that, I can teach you some things that you need to learn. I can grow you in ways that you wouldn't grow otherwise. And that's what I love about how God uses impossible odds for our good. And so today, our Sunday school story is very much tethered to that very reality. And so for me, the story today just had unique, special impact based on the reality of things where I'm like, that's right, God wants us to be in that space because he wants to do some incredible things when the odds are incredibly not in your favor. And that story today is Gideon and his 300. So great fan favorite of Sunday school classes everywhere, and we're going to just bust through this as quick as we can this morning. So, so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go ahead and pray, get our hearts settled, and then we're just going to be racing, man. It's just going to be just cruising through a really fantastic story that has a ton of great lessons to teach us. And so if you would pray with me right now, I would love that. Jesus, I thank you that you invite us to a life with you where the odds are always stacked against us. I mean, you told us, like, hey, man, the world, world's going to see us a certain way. Uh, we're going to face challenges in life. And then you said, but look to you. Stay tethered to you. Let those things be an opportunity for our joy, even when it seems joyless. No, you're going to work in that. And so I pray that as we go through this classic, uh, that we are really thinking about this in relationship to our own life and what it is you have for us what it is you want to do through us, how you do want to take us to the end of ourselves to trust you more and see how you will work and act and do. And so Jesus, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace and for your truth in our life. And I pray that we will live it out, not just know it, study it, but really apply it and live it. And so we look to you, we love you, and we thank you in your good and kind name. Amen. 
All right, so uh, last week we were uh, in this part of the biblical story where uh, we know the Israelites have left Egypt. They're right on the precipice of entering the promised land. It was Joshua and Jericho, right? That real epic story there. And there they are retaking their ancient homeland, right? God has promised this. They're finally moving into that space, and it gets underway. And so that's the book of Joshua. But Joshua comes to a conclusion, and it moves into the next book inside this book, which is the book of Judges. Which, for the record, if you've never read Judges, man, you got to have, take some antidepressants before you read it, because it is a dark book, man. It is like the darkest book of the Bible. Like, that, the kind of content where you're like, that should be banned in public schools kind of thing, because it's some heavy-duty, really tough stuff. And as the book goes on, it progressively gets worse. It reminds us of what happens when repeated generations kind of stray from God and how it overall impacts society and mindset and everything else. But there's a crossover in the early part of the book of Judges. So it's like when things go from good to when they start turning bad. But it does start with some good space. And so, in chapter 2, verse 6, it's at the end of that whole invasion scene. They've done Jericho, many other places. They've come into the land. And so it says, Joshua dismissed the people, and the people of Israel each went to their inheritance to take possession. So here's your space, your space, your space. Start growing crops, doing stuff, living life. And so the people, they serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now, we know there were some bumps along the way. We looked a little bit last week that there was this dude Achan and the defeat of Ai, and there was this whole, like, kind of recalibration. But overall, the people got it. They followed the plan. They inherited the land. They honored their God. And it would be great if at this point in the story, and it was, and Israel lived happily ever after. But they're not good at that. Not at all. In fact, in just three verses, we see where the downturn happens. It says in verse 10b, it says, But there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so as one generation passes, no sooner does that happen, a new generation emerges. And they're like, man, this whole idea of one true God, that's grandpa's religion, that's old school mythology, that we would be so exclusive to one entity. No, we need something fresh. We need something fun. We need something more dynamic that steps in and is practical and feasible and creates solutions in the here and the now. And so we need to bring in a lot more deities to our one God, and we need to have this pantheon of options at our disposal. And so they diversify their deities, right? They just want a little bit more variety. Now, in our modern, western, post-enlightenment world, we look sometimes at this idea of idols, and we go, well, those are just silly, superstitious trinkets and little carved beings. Like, how does that have any real value or meaning or purpose? But in their world, they attributed some practicality to all of these different idols, they looked at the gods or these idols that are kind of embodying these gods, and they're like, no, they serve real daily functions. And in some ways, to have all of these idols makes your, your kind of spiritual life a little bit easier. 
Because there's a difference between the God of Israel and all the other stuff that's in the surrounding nations. And we've talked about some of that in the series, but I'm going to give you a very simplified idea. And that is the idea that with the God of Israel, he's kind of um, complexed. He's got rules and standards and creeds and codes, and you go into covenant with him. He wants this interactive relationship, right? So there's a bunch of moving parts to following the God of Israel. But when it comes to the other idols, they don't care about relationship. They're not in it for some kind of like connection to you as a person, right? And they're also not exclusive. They're like, the more the better, whatever. And they're a bit of a specialist in their field. So one God handles just crops. One God handles just the rain. One God handles fertility. So it's just this kind of, again, diversification, very practical. You're not in it for relationship. It's just this exchange of goods and services. You appease the idol. The idol gives you what you want. And so it's kind of the difference between religion and spirituality in some ways. See, religion, and people critique religion because they're like, oh, it's got so much complexity to it, and it has so much expectation attached because there's all these doctrines and moral codes and everything else. I'm like, right, that's part of the beauty of this idea of religion is it expects something from you. Spirituality is just you make it up as you go, and it's what you want it to be. And there is no real rules attached, no absolutes in the system. And that's kind of why Israel likes these idols. They're way more simplified for the needs that they have in the real world. Where God is complex, Yahweh is pretty deep. And so it seems here they go after two unique elements of the gods. They go after Baal and they go after Ashtaroth. Baal signifies the idea of a storm or weather god. So he's all about their prosperity. He's going to make sure that they get crops and water and everything's going to grow so that they have like this, this sense of we have an economy that's stable and secure and safe and we're thriving. And then Ashtaroth, this is the fertility goddess, which really, if you just distill it down, is about legacy. So what they want in these, these images is prosperity and legacy, which is strange because the God of Israel has already promised that to them. He's like, I'm going to give you that. That's why I'm taking you a land with milk and honey and everything else. You're going to grow and be prosperous like the, the sands of the sea, like the stars of the heavens just follow me. But they're like, that's too much work. You demand too much. These other ways are way simpler, which again, I find even in our own lives, in my life, I, I, I'm probably kind of prone to idols for that same reason. Like, when I'm supposed to do it the, the way of Jesus, and to be blessable by doing life in the way of Jesus, I, I find that that's cumbersome. Because, like, the way of Jesus is actually really difficult, and he tells us it's a difficult way, and it's narrow, and it's tough. A lot of people are going to say, no way! Because to do it like Jesus means I have to do life in ways that are upside down and backwards from the world. I have to do life in such a way where I really believe that living for him is best, even though it doesn't always get things accomplished in the real world like I want. That's why it's easy to be like, oh, I'm just going to turn to other things that are just more efficient. They let me do life like the world does it and puts things into my own hands. This is why Israel likes the idols. But here's the thing I have learned about idols as well, and that is they will always offer you more then they will give you. They will always offer more than they actually can deliver. And they're always, in the end, going to take more from you than they ever give to you, right? So it's like trying to drink seawater to then actually be hydrated. 
you're drinking a lot of water, but the salt's robbing you faster than you can consume. It's the same kind of idea. And so for Israel, they want to secure prosperity, they want to secure legacy, but they're doing it by way of idols, and it's going to steal from them both. So it says in chapter 6, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. This is the descendants of Ishmael. Remember Isaac and Ishmael and that whole thing? Uh, This is the descendants of that other kid of Abraham. And so Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out to help from the Lord. Now I think in the space that they're at at this point, they're thinking that their problem is fiscal or political or territorial. But see, God knows the problem is spiritual. Like those other things would be taking care of themselves if they were focused on things as God wants them to. But they don't want to do that. And so it's interesting then that the response is not, God, we repent, but rather, God, will you help? See, they're still not seeing the problem. They just know that they have a situation. They go back and they go, oh yeah, Grandpa's God. He might be able to do something. So they cry out again and help. Not repentance, not being restored to God in proper relationship, but nonetheless, they cry out and God is gracious. He could just as easily say, you all got yourselves into this, dummies. Good luck. But these are his people, even in their foolishness. And so he is going to step in. Thus, God is going to rise up a deliverer, and a very unlikely one at that. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, that belonged to Joash, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, and he himself to hide from the Midianites. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, this angel of the Lord that shows up, they're not going to realize right off the bat that that's who this is. It's just some dude, right? This dude shows up. And starts having a conversation But this is the same angel of the Lord That in a generation earlier Showed up just before they went into Jericho Remember where he's like You know Joshua's like hey are you a friend or are you a foe And he's like neither bro I'm on God's side And if you're on God's side we're good And if you're not on God's side we're bad Well that same angel of the Lord Is showing up on the scene But here he's got his eyes focused on a dude named Gideon And the name Gideon just means hack which I think is funny. Like, he's just a little hack. That's his person. But we find this little hack beating out wheat in a wine press, which, by the way, is a terrible way to do it. Right? Normally, if you want to do this, you're up on a hilltop. Everybody can see you. You're, taking the, you're beating it down, and you're taking a fork, and you're throwing it into the air, and the kernels fall to the ground, and the chaff blows away, and that's how you get your wheat. He's in a hole. So this isn't working for him. It's a little bit like if somebody said, I need to mill some boards, give me an egg beater. Like, you wouldn't do that. Be the worst tool in the world for the job. And in the same way, that's the situation here. But what's happening with the little hack is that he's afraid. He's hiding out. He's scared, so he's doing it in this way. Which then makes the next statement kind of pop off the page even more. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and he said, the Lord is with you. Oh, mighty man of valor. I'm sure as this, this being, this man, this angel of the Lord peeks over, sees the hack there, and says it, I'm sure Gideon's like, who's with me in here? I can't be that dude, right? I, I, I'm not him. I don't think like him. I don't function like him. I'm a scaredy cat in a hole dealing with wheat like it's wine. That's how bad I am at this. I'm not your guy. To call him a mighty man, a valiant Gideon, 
It's like saying, hey, you're one of those honest politicians, you know? It just doesn't go together. Or, hey, maybe it's one of those tough hippies or vegan hunters or, you know, just these don't fit. He's not a hack that's also courageous and valiant. But what we see here is God is with him. Right? And, and that's one of the things you always want to keep in mind. That no matter who you are, where you're at, or what you face, if God is with you, then you plus God is the supermajority. Right? Unstoppable. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what can come into your life. If God's like, I am with you in this, in your life, you're good to go. Right? And that's going to be the scene here. Because God sees what Gideon will be. He doesn't simply look at who Gideon is right now in the moment. And he sees what he's going to do through Gideon. I think that's important for us to remember as well. We've got to remember that who God can make us is far more potent than what we can make of ourselves even. We're not self-made people, not if we really follow Christ. We're really Christ-made people because he does this in us. And that's really even going to be Gideon's lesson here. Unfortunately for Gideon, he's not quite vibing with this whole narrative just yet. And so Gideon said to him in verse 13 of chapter 6, Please, sir, which is probably less like, please, sir. Not like that. It's a bit more like, please, buddy, come on, right? He says, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? And why are all of his wonderful deeds that we've heard about not really happening? We heard about it a long time ago. We hear about things like, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. See, in the Old Testament, we call this lament. And we've seen lament before. And one of the things you've got to remember about lament is it's not always sorrowful. Sometimes it's accusatory also. Like you did this and did this and did this, but why are we in this space now? And so there is a certain tone in Gideon like, where's God? Things are bad. He used to show up. He's not showing up today. What I have found in life is that nothing erodes belief faster than circumstance. It's really easy when life is good to be like, I believe in God, Jesus, Bible, his faithfulness. But when things are rough and the odds are bad, man, that's the real test. And sometimes circumstance just lays waste to faith. Now, in this, God could have responded and said, where's God? Well, I ditched you all because you're stupid. I just let you rot because, hey, that's what I do. When you choose to walk away from me, I choose to walk away from you. He could have said that. I put you out in the woodshed because you're fools. He doesn't say that, though. No, instead, God's here to help. And so the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Here's what I love about this, right? Gideon's kind of passionate with this angel of the Lord. Like, dude, where's God? He's kind of fired up. And so the angel of the Lord's like, hey, we should take that passion and use it. Why don't you go in the might that God has given you, right? And again, if God is sending you to do a thing, then he's given you everything to do that thing. And so that's going to be true here. But again, unfortunately for Gideon, he's not positive that what God is selling, he's buying, right? So he says to him again, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. He's like, listen, bro, look around. My, my group isn't big. I'm small. I'm weak. I'm like the Steve Urkel of Israel. This is not your warrior to go and do this task. 
But then the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike Midian as one man. See, this is great because what he does for the third time, this is God speaking through this angel of the Lord, as for the third time, he, he reiterates the promise. I told you I'm with you. I told you I'm with you. I told you I'm going to do this with you. And the outcome is certain. I'm rocking and rolling with you, right? And so you are going to do this as one man, my God, because I am with you to make this task happen. And it doesn't happen because Gideon is so swole and tough and dangerous. No, it's, it's simply because, man, God is riding shotgun in this process. It's going to be a victory, not because Gideon's rad, but because God is good. Now, you'd think this conversation would be enough for Gideon at this point. to be like, okay, I'm in. But he's still hesitant. So he's like, I'll tell you what, hold on a second. Like, I'll go in the house, you stay here, I'm gonna do some stuff. So he goes in, he cooks some goat, uh, and, and then he gets together some barley, and he makes cakes and some broth, and he comes back out, and he's like, here! You know, it's like this, kind of this, let's down, sit down and eat. And the angel of the Lord's like, okay, tell you what, just take the cakes and the, the meat and put it on a rock and pour the broth all over it, and he does, and then the angel of the Lord takes a staff and hits it, and it all consumed by fire, and then Gideon's like, whoa, now I get it! You're like a superpower being. You must be the Lord. You must be God. And so he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. I was looking at this this week, and I thought three things stick out. It's gift, command, and promise. The gift is peace. The command is do not fear. And the promise is you won't die. And, and when I thought about this this week, I thought um, it's interesting, at least in my own life, I find that I need the gift to fulfill the command and believe in the promise. I need the gift of peace first <laughs> to really then lean forward into not fearing and really believing that there's gonna be a promise on the other end of you're not gonna die, you're gonna live, this is gonna work, it's gonna be okay in the end, don't sweat this. I think the key of peace here is critical for Gideon. Right? Because what we're going to see is he's going to name this place like this monument of peace. But I want to be clear also what peace is, is this gift of God. Peace is not the absence of strife and problem and hardship. Peace is the presence of God in the midst of that. In other words, God is the peace in the peace. Getting rid of the problem isn't necessarily the peace. It can be. But you don't need the problem to go away to have the peace. If God is with you, he can be enough in the midst of the problem. For Gideon, though, in chapter 6, verse 24, he built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it, the Lord is peace. Not peace comes from the Lord, but God is the very essence of peace. And so he has the gift, and so he's ready to fulfill the command, right? Kind of. It says, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has built, and then cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order, and then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of Azareth that you cut down. And so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him to do. Now, what I appreciate about this little section of the story is that the pagan problems aren't out there. It's not those neighbors, those people, those odd ducks. No, it's right in his midst. It's his old man. His dad is part of the problem. 
And now he's got to do something that it directly impacts his dad. I read this part of the story and I go, man, Thanksgiving dinner was going to be rough. I mean, you think it's tough talking about like Trump versus Biden a couple of years ago. This is going to be bad. Like we're worshiping Baal and now you're cutting down the stuff and you're doing this thing. And you're, I mean, it's just going to be kind of a headache. But he rallies his buddies. He's going to do a little bit of what I'm going to call pagan cow tipping here tonight. That's his plan. But it's going to be an insult to his father. It's going to be a major offense, in fact. It's like taking his dad's 67 Camaro and driving it straight through like the corporate headquarters and then lighting everything on fire, right? Because it's going to be like, that's your legacy. That's your prosperity. That's your very life essence. I'm just burning it all to the ground, right? But here's the thing about idols that God knows, and he's getting Gideon to, to take ownership of, and that is that idols don't go easy, right? You have to step in, and phase one is remove them. And then phase two is replace them with repentance, which is why he's supposed to tear down, cut up, burn with this bull on it. it it's like this kind of sacrificial thing to God, like trying to reset the standard. It's about God, not about all these other things. That's the calling. Now with this, you would think, okay, our little hack is ready to go and the courage that he's been given, right? No. It says, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. It's like, whew, I'll slip in under dark. It'll go great. What you see is Gideon the Great is not yet Gideon the Great. He has a ways to go. But when the men of the town rose early the next morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And so they're like, who would have done this? Right? Who would have ruined this man's prosperity, kind of insulted his virility, and then in, in the worst way possible, took like the blue ribbon cow and killed it? I mean, it almost sounds like a country song in some ways. Like, he just did all that stuff, right? And so this game of kind of Jewish clue goes underway. Who done it? Where? With what? So they said to one another, who's done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. And so, again, in the game of Clue, they're like, Gideon on the hill with the Zippo. That's who did it. They're going to bust this dude, right? And in their world, it's a capital crime. Like, he hasn't done something casual. They're like, this is death-worthy. But it's weird that they're all kind of clamoring for this. And the guy that should be most worked up is the dude most chill. It says, but Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerob Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. I love this. He's like, you know what? Let's think about this, fellas. If Baal's an actual deity, let him fight his own battles. This is stupid that we're going to take things in our hands. Let him deal with it. As for my kid, he's got a new name now. He's Baal the Slayer, right? Gideon the Slayer of the Baal. That is my boy. And so he gets this new moniker, this new name. It sounds like a WWE title. I don't know, but that's who he is now. But as all this drama is happening with the Israelites, the enemies of Israel, they're busy too. It says in verse 33, 
Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel and it was a total of 135,000 troops. See, we hear that number and it's just like white noise. Uh, here's a picture of Bristol Motor Speedway. That is the second largest like seat section space in the world. The first is in North Korea, which is super weird, right? But, but this one holds like 146,000, so just 11,000 more, right? So this gives you a size of that military that is on the other side of the Israelites right now. Or to put it in a different perspective, in the last 20 years, the, the highest military deployment we had was 135,000. The current United States Marine Corps is 177,000 active troops total, global. So this is no small-scale force that they're up against, right? And so now Gideon and crew need to be this counter-offensive to this mobilizing military. It's got huge scale. So what's going to happen? Well, it says in verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. So he goes full-on Braveheart here. Just rallies the clans, which is cool. But the other thing you see there is that it said the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The idea here is God is like the armor to our little hack. Like he's not sophisticated. He's no military presence. He's not a general. He's a kid that does winnowing of wheat in a wine press. But when you're clothed with God and his power and his strength and his purposes, man, God is going to do some great stuff. And so the people are pouring in but in that space, Gideon wavers again. It says, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and then the ground next to it is dry, then I will know that you are going to save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose up the next morning, he squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew of the fleece, and it kind of filled up about a bowl of water. And so at that point, you think Gideon be like, okay, God's made his point. God's cleared things up. God has validated his plan. But he doesn't have that attitude. That's not necessarily his spirit. He's still a bit uncertain. He wants to double check again, right? It's a green light from God, but some yellow lighting in his heart. So in verse 39, it says, Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. I'm like, hmm, you're testing this one here. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just one more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did the same thing that night. It was dry on the fleece only, and the ground there was dew. So remember uh, when you were a kid with your siblings, and there was one toy you wanted to play with, and you had to settle it so you'd flip a coin? And the first one didn't go in your favor, so you'd say, best two out of three, right? That's this. It's the best two out of three. How about God we do one more time? Just want to make sure, even though I've been testing you all the way through, Right? But even though he lacks faith, God is gracious and accommodates. But now Gideon has no choice but to go. So then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people were with him. They rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And at the camp of Midian, the north of them, near the hills of Moriah in the valley, they were all kind of positioned there, right? And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Man, we're all tempted to do that. 
Now, therefore, proclaim to the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So first of all, the spring of Herod literally means the spring of trembling. So it gives you a sense of the spirit in the camp right there, right? It's like here is this collected kind of like military unit and they're all right near next to like the shores of Camp Wanna Wanna Cry. You know, like they're just, I don't want to go. I'm freaking out, right? So you got 135,000 troops over there. You have a fraction of it on the other side and now God looks at the leader and says, let's thin the herd. Let's work this out a little bit more. So why don't you ask everybody at Camp Quakey Boots who wants to go home? So he does, and then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. As soon as he asked the question, it's like kids getting busted at a kager. They're out the windows, the doors, everything. It's just, we're out of here. We're going home. We're not going to fight this battle, right? And so finally, Gideon, the Baal Slayer, has his ragtag army. That combat ratio is 13 and a half Midianites to every one Israelite. Those are bad odds. Those are bad odds, man. Right? Trying to fight that many people as a sole soldier. But then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Let's take them down to the water and I'll test them there for you. And so they go down. And he's like, okay, here's the thing. I want you to have everybody decide to start drinking water. And some are going to do it in a certain way, and others are going to do it in another way. And the ones that lap like a dog, I want you to take note of them, because they're different than the other ones. And so this is kind of a weird test. Like, okay, so let me get this straight. How people drink water is going to be the discerner of who is the next rung in this weird military bachelor thing, you know? Who gets the rose? You know, it's like this weird thing. What's really interesting, when you dig into it a little bit more, it's a little bit complicated, but the idea here is that he's separating out what I'm going to call the dog lappers from the war fighters, right? And in Israelite culture, uh, dogs were detested. God, or dogs were dirty. They were like pigs. They were scrappy, nasty. You didn't like dogs. So God's like, some are going to be like the dogs, and the others are going to be this other group. And I'm sure as Gideon hears this and sees this, he's like, whew, at least only 300 are those weirdo dog lappers. Don't have to deal with them. I get the other 9,700, right? No. Then the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lap, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go home. And he's like, what? Really? I'm getting stuck with these dudes? Like, I'm sure he's thinking, I need 300 Spartans. I need Lionatus and his brave 300. What he gets instead is a bunch of hillbillies that are like Psy from Duck Dynasty, right? It's like, this is what we're going to war with right here. This is our crack crew, right? It's brilliant. It's great. It's awesome. It's like having 304 Pintos and a crash-up derby. Let's go, baby! But that's where God wants him to be. Puts him in that space. I know you're like, I'm going to keep looking at that for a minute. Michael and I were talking about how long we could just leave it up and kind of bathe in it. Muddy water. Mm, all right. Judges chapter 7, verse 8. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and then he sent the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. You, you probably wouldn't pick up on it just kind of reading it, but what we notice is that they take provisions and torches. What they don't take is spears and swords and shields. 
It's an army with no weapons, offensive or defensive. It's just a bunch of derpity dudes with sack lunches and flashlights. Like, it's just, it's the worst model possible. And this army is so thinned out. What it does is it says, the odds are not in your favor. You will take zero credit for this campaign. Your dysfunctional detachment, that's my plan. It's a terrible space to be in. But it's the reminder that God's going to get the credit. Now, I want to keep in mind, too, God could just as easily say, you know what, I got this. We don't need 300. We don't need the, the whiny little hack that's a wimp. We don't need any. I'll just kind of pummel them all in one night. But he still wants to use people in this process. He just picks unlikely people. What some would say are unuseful people, the dogs of the camp to do this great thing. The problem is Gideon is still not fully sold on this whole thing. It says, that same night the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. I don't know if you paid attention there, but it's a really brilliant thing. What's he say? If you're afraid to go down, go down. It's like, if you're afraid of the dark, turn off the light. If you're afraid of the future, move into it, right? The brilliance here is not run from your fears, it's face your fears. It's just like, I get you might be afraid, but you gotta go down and face it, man. Go down to the camp. And so he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And all the people of the east were there in the valley, right? Just plethora, like locusts everywhere, right? Camels that were more in number than the sands of the sea. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, which the ESV, I'm like, they were Soviets now? Like, these are Russians? No. Comrade, let me tell you something. And he says, behold, I dreamed a dream. And so now Les Mis breaks out for a second. And the dream is weird. He's like, I have this dream. There was this cake of barley bread that tumbled into the camp of Midian and it turned the tent, hit the tent and it struck it so that it fell and turned upside down. And now the tent lays flat. So he's like, okay, there was this bread wheel of death in my dream. And then his comrade answered, he says, this is nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given him into the hand of Midian and all the camp. And so I'm like, how did you get that from a dream about a spinning bread roll of death? Somehow he does, right? Somehow this barley cake is Gideon. But I really don't think that comrade A is telling comrade B for the sake of their interaction. It's because God wants Gideon to overhear this whole thing. So as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He worshipped. And there's two lessons here that I think are important. One is it's the reminder, as much as God was working in Gideon, God was working in the enemy camp. We sometimes think that the solution is always on this one side of the equation, in my world. But sometimes God is doing a completely different thing in another aspect. And in the camp, he's creating anxiety, but with Gideon, now he's creating peace, right? So you got to remember, God is always working in the margins. The other thing to remember is anytime you get any hint of hope, any hint of like, man, God is on the move, stop and worship. Don't let it be, and this is what I tend to do. I'll wait till the end. 
I'll wait till it's all resolved and then I'll worship. And sometimes I almost hold back and my wife will be like, you don't like hope, do you? I'm like, not much, no. I like certainty. And she's like, you should start to love hope. I'm like, yes, I should. I should. And that's what he does, right? He hopes and he praises. And so from this, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given us the host of Midian into your hands. This is your battle. And so he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them. And then he took empty jars with flaming torches inside and he handed those off as well. And he says, look at me, do as I do. When I do action, you repeat the action. And as you do, as you follow my lead and we blow the trumpets and we're doing all this stuff and we're shouting on every side of the camp, I want you to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And so again, they're unarmed. Trumpet in one hand, a jar with fire inside on, on the other hand. You're not, you're not going to battle with the sword. Your Lord is your sword. But there's something in this that comes out and you're like, this is a bit of a problem. It's great that God has said, I will get the credit. And so Gideon says, for the Lord and for me and for Gideon. See, he's suddenly injecting himself into the narrative. He's going to take a little bit of credit for something that is not his to take credit on. Now put a pin in that because it's going to come up in just a minute here, right? Back to the impending battle. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch when they had just set the watch. So you get the idea that, hey, the guards have done their transition. Everything's chilling in the camp. It's somewhere in the early morning hours. And right then they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that they had in their hands. And then all three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars that they held in their left hands with the torches and the right hands with the trumpets and they blow and they all cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon and so you got to think man here's these poor soldiers thinking everything is just totally fine the guards are doing their job they're sawing logs and all of a sudden boom all this stuff right like you're in deep REM sleep and all of a sudden, you're just thrust awake, and you are brought into absolute camp chaos in a millisecond. So they wake up, and they just start swinging swords, man. It says, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And then the army fled as far as Beth Shitta, which that name, I know. <laughs> I know. The only thing I can figure is that's what scared them that night. It scared it right out of them. <laughs> scared the Beth Shitta right out of them. And I get it because 120,000 die. All right? That's a lot of people, right? And then after that, there's this kind of like mopping up campaign where Gideon and his soldiers kind of clean up the rest. But none of this happened. Again, I remind us, none of this happened because the odds were forever in Gideon's favor. This happened because the odds were distinctly not in Gideon's favor. But God was with Gideon. And honestly, that's all of life for us. All of life is that. We like to think we go our own way, do our own thing, create our own whatever, but, but the reality is, no. God has to do the delivering so often in life. The other thing I thought about with this is that, you know, we all love sure things, right? We do. But I realized this week that uh, truly inspiring things, like truly igniting things, are not sure things. 
they're God things, aren't they? Like the sure thing that happens in your life, that's great. That's like gravy. When it shouldn't happen, when nothing is working right, and then God steps in, it's a God thing. And when a God thing happens, it's way more impressive. Right? It's way more impressive. We talk about when God things happen. When sure things happen, they just move along, and we just go to the next sure thing. But a God thing makes much of God and gives us a miracle to brag on and worship over. And so that's exactly what happens in this story here. And you would think with that, with such an epic story, then they lived happily ever after. They didn't make the same mistake as the previous generation. But no. No sooner is God's glory displayed that Gideon's pride is enshrined. It says, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So you go, oh, good. At least he's got that part good. It's solid. He says, however, I do have one request. That each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from the fallen enemies, because again, they're Ishmaelites, and so they all wore gold earrings. And so they answered, we will willingly give them to you. And so they spread a cloak, threw all of this gold earring stuff in, about a million dollars worth of gold earrings. So that's a, that's a haul, right? Also some ornaments and pendants and some other things. And while Gideon isn't saying, I want to be in charge, I want to be your ruler, what he is saying is, but I want to be remembered for this. I want to be revered, right? It, it kind of starts to ebb into a slight bit of... Um, I, I, I want to almost be like slightly worshipped, like a hero. Like God did it all, but God couldn't have done it all without me for the Lord and for Gideon. This so says, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ephrah, not Oprah, Ephrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So God takes this scaredy cat hack and raises him up, even though he's afraid. And now that same dude is here in pride saying, yeah, don't forget me. Don't forget to esteem me. And it becomes a snare. This idea of hoard after it is this idea that they started to make it an idol. Gideon starts to become the idol. This ephod becomes an idol in their lives. And so early on, like round one, Gideon versus Baal, Gideon wins. But round two, at the end, what happens? Baal comes around and destroys the character of Gideon's, Gideon and makes it about his his pride more than God's goodness and glory and rescue. Such a mess. Such a mess. What was probably most tragic is that what Gideon fails to do is what he was most commissioned to do, which was he was to ensure that Israel didn't fall into faithlessness again. And yet he actually engineers the capacity for them to do that. He falls them or causes them to slip right back into the problem. And it kind of sets them up. They don't do it completely, but it gets them ready for the next iteration. So the story kind of wraps up in chapter six, or chapter eight, rather, verses 28, and then 33 to 35. It says, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they ra raised their heads no more, right? They didn't cause any more trouble. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon, but as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, Right? They went after this old stuff, and in part because Gideon didn't ensure they wouldn't do it. In fact, again, he made it possible for them to do it in this training wheel sort of way. And so the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love. 
to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done for Israel. Again, in part because Gideon himself lacked fidelity and faith. See, the closing lesson here that I think is really critical uh, is that uh, it's not enough to just kind of wage those battles, see God deliver against the odds, and have faithfulness in the moment. But to take that and let that be a springboard for the future. To remember how God has delivered in the past, and from that, that drives faithfulness as you move toward whatever's next. So whatever comes next, God is even more faithful in your space because you know what he's done before. Gideon fails to do this. He elevates himself more than he elevates God in the midst of this, and from this, Israel falls into another cycle of they forget, they sin, they're chastised, they repent, they sin, they're, they're chastised. I mean, it's just this awful cycle. Because they're not learning to just hold on to the Lord. It's kind of like God plus other things. God plus other things. And, and see, that's always going to be the temptation for us. That's always the temptation for me. And so right now, I just want to invite us all to pray. And as we do, Jesus, I come before you, and I confess, admit, repent of the very things that I fall into that was Gideon, right? Where I want to test and another test and another test, and I want to be faithful, but sometimes I, I, I put myself before your purposes, and then I'm second-guessing, and all these things that we are prone to do. I pray that we will repent of those things, and we will cleave to your things, that we will realize that you plus us is everything, and us plus other things and you is nothing. Help us to long for you. Help us to be loyal to you. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to see the impossible odds as very possible because you are with us. We thank you and we praise you in your good name. Amen.